I did finally figure out how to get the the chat log to show up with the call going at the same time. Yeah, that's, that's quite a trick. That's what's causing the echo, Chuck, you fool. <laughs> is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application's performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 43 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week we're going to be talking about Land of List with Conrad Barsky. And so uh, obviously on this week's panel we have Conrad Barsky. Hello. You want to introduce yourself really quickly? Yeah, so uh, I work mainly as a uh, medical software developer. Um, I've been working for a company called uh, Walters Kluwer uh, for uh, over a decade. It's a a big uh, 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 international conglomerate, and nobody's ever heard of it. Um, And uh, they uh, produce various types of uh, uh, hospital uh, software systems. And uh, before that, I uh, did some, uh, way back in the days, a little work as a uh, Atari programmer. Um, and uh, also uh, went to medical school. So I have kind of a strange uh, route into uh, programming. And uh, for, for some bizarre reason, uh, a few years ago, or many years at this point, uh, although it doesn't seem so long ago, I, I created a little cartoon tutorial online on list programming called Casting Spells. And uh, one of the uh, editors at No Starch Press uh, liked it, and they wanted to do a list book. And so they contacted me. And uh, um, even though like I'm completely unqualified to write on any sort of academic uh, subject like Lisp, uh, they uh, 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 agreed to have me uh, write a book, and uh, then basically I got started on it. And um, uh, Lisp is kind of weird in that um, uh, the really interesting stuff about Lisp is actually the more advanced stuff. So um, uh, I realized that if I write a book on Lisp, it's going to um, have to cover some advanced subjects, or it would kind of be pointless because you'd read the book and it's like, you know, what's the big deal? <laughs> uh, so, uh, so I started on the book, and uh, and then every every time I finished the, uh, a chapter, I would send it to my editor at No Starch, and he would say, uh, Oh no, you you can't move this quickly. You're going to have to take this chapter and break it down into to three separate chapters. And so, so I I felt like that uh, that the Greek uh, fable. I'm trying to remember what it's called, where the guy is trying to capture the turtle and the turtle always moves uh you know uh, uh half uh, the distance again uh, uh away from him and so he never reaches it uh <laughs> i kind of felt like that with this book where the more i wrote the book the further the end of the book would uh move away from me because my editor just kept forcing me to make it simpler and simpler and slower and slower and uh and so it took me forever to finish it but eventually i did get to the end and ended up with a relatively fat book for a programming book and uh uh you know but in the end it it turned out well uh people seemed to enjoy it so so basically every time you would submit the book you had it had a function or a defun that would actually submit the book with the with the cutter as the book and your editor would return a whole new car <laughs> and the original cutter unchanged something like that yes right. <laughs> so we had sort of a, a what's it called a, a race condition <laughs> yes Yes. And for all the Ruby programmers out there who have no idea what I just said and think Conrad just made a racist joke, tune in next week. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, we'll yeah you gotta you gotta cutter the rest of our backlog. <laughs> are, are we still doing intros? Yeah, I think we are. We'll we'll introduce the rest of the panel and then we'll start talking about the book. So also on our panel we have David Brady. Hi, this is David Brady. I don't normally do the intro. I just say, hey, this is David Brady. Uh, but last week, uh, my stealth startup came out of stealth, and I am uh, co-founding Slide Rule Labs with uh, JT Zemp. We're going to do a little consulting, a little product development, and hopefully a little bit of uh, corporate training. Cool. Uh, we also have Josh Susser. Hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, from now on, we're going to call David Slipstick Brady. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, the cu- the cutter of that one is lipstick. It's <laughs> and the car is S. <laughs> Slipstick. It makes me think of the woman trying to put on makeup in the movie Airplane. Oh, go read some Rob. <laughs> nice. Go go read some Robert Heinlein. Okay. Back. We also have James Edward Gray. I am being lazily evaluated for this podcast. Nice. And I'm Charles Maxwood from TeachMeToCode.com. And uh, yeah, so uh, it, it's kind of interesting to hear about uh, how, how the book came about. And, you know, I, I guess it's a little bit different process from just writing on a blog to write a book. A lot, a lot of feedback, a lot of input. Yeah, uh, I, I was really happy with No Starch. Uh, you know, I've, I've never done anything like that before. You know, I worked with an editor and, uh, you know, it was uh, kind of the right mix of, um, you know, letting me do what I wanted, wanted, what I thought was necessary, but also, you know, giving me some guidance. So, um, I, you know, I, I thought it worked out really well. Um, and, uh, you know, the main thing I wanted to do with the book is, um, uh, uh, you know, it's very easy if, if you're writing a book on a certain subject to just uh, take whatever the specification is of that, you know, programming language or whatever, and then say, okay, I'm going to take every paragraph out of the uh, the list, uh, common list, fancy spec, and uh, and turn it into a chapter or whatever, and uh, just kind of write uh, top to bottom. And there are some list books out there that are like that, and, and they're definitely useful as reference material. But what I really uh, instead did, uh, which is more difficult, uh, um, uh, and, and hard to get right is I, I just, um, tried to, to think my way, you know, from the beginning all the way through Lisp and just kind of <laughs> free associate a little bit and, uh, try to throw in, you know, interesting asides and, uh, um, you know, just try to sort of go naturally through all the material. Um, uh, uh, and so, uh, the book is, uh, uh, a couple of people uh, said that they thought it was a good page turner, which which uh, I I felt proud of because uh, you know that's kind of what I wanted to do, uh, uh, just make it fun to read and uh, you know to, to figure out what's going to happen next. I actually wanted to comment on that page turner. It it just so happens that I was reading two books uh, at the same time, uh, one of which being Land of Lisp and the and the other one being. A, a very dry manual, and I mean, they were almost exact opposites of each other. In, in that, like, Land of Lisp has you know the nice big font. It has comics. It's you know entertaining and fun. This other book, I swear, it's written in a three-point font. You know, the goal is to cram every single word on every page. It takes me like an hour to read a two-page spread. You know, and it was just so funny that I was reading both of these at the same time because it was very, very big opposites. So I really enjoyed how easy it is to to just get into Land of Lisp. I I have to second that, um, Connor. You had no idea of this, but. Uh, for me, so the 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 people who didn't read the book uh, and the the 
the discount code that we gave out is still valid at No Starch for a couple of months, isn't it? Yeah, through June, I think. Okay, you seriously, if you haven't read the book, this is the best ad we can give you for the book. The subtitle is Learn to Program Lisp One Game at a Time. And the book was a page turner for me because the very first programming book I ever bought, it is still on my shelf in the place of honor. It's called Creating Adventure Games on Your Computer by Tim Hartnell. And it was for the TI-99-4A computer. Oh, yeah. Uh, and like every other program was also for the Commodore 64. It was back in the days when you had to target like like three or four different, you know, basics. And um, this took me right back. I was just like, oh, yay. I played the uh, the the game where you fight the, the bandits and the hydras. I played that way past the point of interest. Like like my wife was like, aren't you bored with this yet? I'm like, no, shut up. This is my childhood. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 really weird because I, I also like you know I I initially started off the project by trying to figure out what the games would be that would be in the book, and the first game that I really wanted to do I, I as a kid I was a really huge Ultima fanatic so I wanted to make a uh, ASCII sort of Ultima clone, uh, mm-hmm. which I guess it would be more described as a rogue clone for most people, um, and uh, uh, and I started down that yeah or NetHack um, and I started down that road and then I realized there was a problem which is that um, to have a sort of minimally viable um, uh, net hack or roguelike um, requires a lot of programming. Um, uh, it's there's enough going on where you can't really break it into little chunks. And so, you know, what I see in a lot of books that I I don't like is when they when they have a big program at the end and that maybe goes through six chapters or something, and they just um, they say, okay, well, by the end of the sixth chapter, sixth chapter, you'll be able to um, run the program. To, to me, that doesn't sound like fun. What I want to do is I want the first chapter to already have some kind of fun uh, result. And uh, then, you know, the second chapter should build up, build on that. And I realized it wasn't possible with a, with a roguelike. And so, um, uh, so I, you know, I, I, tr- I had to come up with other game ideas. And, uh, and so, so like, for instance, at the end, I have sort of a, a simple board game and I, I, I painstakingly figured out how to break it into very small chunks where each chapter that discusses it um, ends up with a workable game at the end that just improves incrementally. Um, and that that was kind of a pain. <laughs> nice. Well, I liked the, the way that you also started uh, into the description of the Lisp language in a way that gives people something interesting right up front, just like you did with the games. It, and I... I've been on a little bit of a kick lately looking at uh, training materials for Ruby and object-oriented languages, and it seems like most of them shy away from talking about objects and methods and classes until they've gone into all of the procedural parts of the language, and I find that a little annoying. It's like, if you're going to talk about an object-oriented language, you should start with objects. And I like that in talking about Lisp, you start with functions which is the obvious place to start, right? Yeah, although I kind of, um, I've, I, there has been some criticism about that because uh, the first example I give for a game is, is you know, the old school um, guess my number game where the computer tries to guess your number. Uh-huh. And uh, when I created that program, I actually um, use um, d- uh, dynamic variables, which, uh, you know, essentially you can think of as global variables. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, and, and they get modified as the game runs. And of course, that's a big no-no for functional programming. So, um, you know, so why am I starting a list book by by having mutating state? 
And uh, uh, but the problem is, is, is that, um, you know, I, I didn't I, I wasn't really expecting with this book that a complete novice would uh, be, be reading it. What I expected is that people who have some familiarity with other languages are reading it. And so um, uh, so if I give a simple example, I have to give something that people are familiar with, at least at some level. And uh, uh, starting with just pure functional programming is, is kind of daunting for, for somebody. Um, so, so, uh, yeah, so it's, it's kind of, uh, it's a difficult trade-off. Um, and, uh, you know, you kind of have to, you have to make a lot of uh, weird decisions when you write a book in, in, in this type of style, uh, uh, where you, you know, you kind of have to decide, well, you know, do you, do you force people to, you know, to, <laughs> to eat their vegetables or do you, uh, do you have something fun instead that maybe, uh, doesn't, uh, you know, uh, teach the material in, uh, in as direct a manner as you would like? <laughs> well, well, you can't teach them everything at the start. You got to start somewhere. So right, I, right. I think that your approach was just fine. I oh I actually kind of wondered if it wasn't deliberate. You know, it's like it's like uh, that's not good functional programming. This is a list book, guys. Try to keep up. <laughs> <You know? laughs> this is your cow. This is my altar. We're having sacred hamburgers. <laughs> so that well, yeah, that, I mean. That's definitely one uh, advantage I had being that I'm kind of an autodidact with this stuff is that I could just, uh, you know, it's not like if I write a crappy book, like, you know, I would be, uh, uh, you know, uh, lose tenure or, or something because, uh, you know, I, I have some uh, some credibility as a, a, a you know, uh, an academic software developer or something. So it's like I, I, I uh, could take some risks and and do some things that maybe people would think uh, would be uh you know, bad practice, uh, just f because I thought uh, that's how I would like to learn it. <laughs> There's a, a really interesting thing you do in the book, and it's it may have backfired, or or maybe it's a testament to the fact that I actually took you so much at your word. But I actually put your book down and stopped reading at page 16, and I I I was one of the people that lobbied for this book. I've I've owned my copy for pretty much since you launched the website. I think I did the pre-order, and on page 16 you have three little drawings. You have a drawing of a rabid dog and you basically say this is common lisp. It has all the power and it's you know, it, it, it will poop on the on the carpet. And then you have this fluffy little sheep and you say this is scheme and it's pretty and it's it's you know it's uh, it's kinda like Dave Brady. It can't shut up, right? It's it, it's you know long, big, babbly, rambly bits and to be syntactically correct. And then the third one is the picture of the rabid dog wrapped in the sheep's fur like Hannibal Lecter. And, I love that picture. And, and you're like, if you want all the power but the syntactical sugar, maybe you should learn Haskell. And I took you at your word. I put the book down and I went and I spent like a week trying to learn Haskell. And I'm like, this sucks. I'm going back to Lisp. <laughs> Well, you know, if there's sort of one message that I would tell people uh, listening to this podcast, it's uh, it's that um, it's very easy to think, you know, if you've been doing uh, uh, programming in Java or Ruby or, you know, uh, one of the mainstream languages, it's very easy to think that um, you kind of um, know a lot of what is going on with programming. And, uh, uh, you know, and I used to be in that same boat. Uh, and then you find out there uh, things like Lisp and Haskell. Um, and, you know, there's other things like Erlang that are also interesting. But, but th these uh, languages, they really have c uh, completely new ideas that 
uh, uh, that you would, you know, never um, th even think about if 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 uh, you were using, you know, more traditional programming languages. And um, uh, um, if you if you can just spend a couple of weeks with Haskell or with Lisp, uh, um, you know, it it really pays off, and you will you will learn. Uh, even though Lisp is, you know, 50 years old, you will learn really mind-blowing things that that you you would never would have thought of uh, without uh, having spent some time with these languages. Um, and you know, the, the thing with uh, um, uh, Lisp was because you know it it was used for decades as a practical tool uh, uh, for for programming, uh, you know, AI and stuff back in the 80s and 90s. Um, it uh, it uh, common Lisp, the you know the the main dialect of Lisp, carries a lot of baggage with it, uh, and it has a it basically lets you program in any way that you want to because it's you know very much a multi-paradigm language. Uh, I was actually going to ask you some things about uh, about that. So you. You chose Common Lisp uh, as your dialect. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about there being so many different dialects of Lisp? Like they're all, you know, a little different. I mean, David mentioned Scheme, which is basically the pure, you know, uh, Lisp. Common Lisp is, I, I think of it as kind of the junk drawer with, you know, absolutely everything you could ever want in there. Um, while I was reading Land of Lisp, uh, I'm also uh, messing around with Emacs quite a bit lately, so I'm learning a fair bit of Emacs Lisp, which is you know uh, different still. And I, I did translate some of the examples from the book. I didn't have time to get through all of them, uh, but uh, how do you feel about the all the different dialects of Lisp? Uh, well, to finish my earlier train of thought, uh, the reason I point out Haskell is because it really is um, the extreme version. There's no uh, compromise in the Haskell language. So if you want to learn functional programming, um, it, it, it's really, uh, 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 it forces you to do it the right way. Whereas with common Lisp, you can get away with basically writing a Java program if you want. Um, in terms of the, all the various Lisp dialects, um, the, you know, the, the, the weird thing about Lisp is um, that, uh, um, uh, you know, most uh, programming languages were sort of built around the idea of a, of a von Neumann architecture, you know, back in the early days of ENIAC and stuff, um, you know, people were trying to figure out, well, how can we make a computer do something useful and, you know, make it a little easier to program than just typing in raw numbers. Um, and uh, uh, the weird thing about, about Lisp is that it basically came out of mathematics because these guys, uh, uh, in particular, John McCarthy, uh, was playing around with this thing called lambda calculus, which is a sort of a form of algebra where there's you have certain substitution rules, and and you know you with a with a lambda calculus, if you use the substitution rules, you can do something that's sort of basically very primitive programming. And he thought, and then of course the the obvious next step is if you can if you have a primitive programming language, is well how hard it would it be to write uh, the lambda calculus in itself. Uh, and it turns out, well, that's actually very difficult. So, so John McCarthy sat down and he said, well, let's create a new language that's based on the Lambda calculus, uh, but it has a few more bells and whistles, and it makes it really easy to, to write uh, uh, itself, uh, an interpreter for itself in the actual language. And so, so basically Lisp is, is, was just a pure mathematical uh, uh, game when it first came out, a, you know, a, a, a play using the rules of math. And because of that, it, you know, it's timeless. And because of that also, um, you can have many different dialects of Lisp, and they're all still Lisp because if you if you use uh, uh, parentheses in the way uh, that all Lisp languages uh, use parentheses, which basically are as a form of um, uh, uh, 
simplifying the syntax of the language, uh, making it easier to, to, to read the, the, the text of the language uh, and you know, uh, figure out how to interpret it uh, or compile it. Uh, if, if you have that, uh, then you're a Lisp. And so all these different dialects like Common Lisp, Arc, Clojure, uh, Scheme, uh, you know, they're all basically the same language when, you, when it really comes down to it uh, with only sort of minor differences and they're all, they're all Lisps. I mean, you know, I'm definitely somebody who prefers things that are uh, a, a bit more elegant and, uh, you know, uh, take into account all the, you know, the modern thinking and programming. And so, so common Lisp uh, is because Lisp, uh, the design of Lisps in general, is so flexible. Um, you can actually do uh, pretty much anything in common Lisp that you can do in any other Lisp. Uh, but common Lisp just has just a million different features and a lot of them extremely. Uh, obscure. There was never an attempt really to, to, to make it elegant. Uh, but then specific uh, people came around and they decided, well, let's try to make uh, something elegant out of it. And the first uh, successful attempt of that was Scheme, um, uh, which is uh, uh, basically simplifies a lot of what's happening in Lisp. And then a more recent, uh, uh, very popular uh, take on that is Clojure. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I Personally, my favorite uh, Lisp right now is, is Clojure, um, and it's definitely uh, uh, much more elegant than Common Lisp. Um, so that's kind Here of my see. take on that. <laughs> so am I, am I understanding correctly that basically you defined Lisp as anything where you write the abstract syntax tree for the compiler? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of hard to say exactly what, what Lisp is, but the, the thing that all Lisp... Um, uh, languages have in common is uh, whenever you, you write a, uh, um, uh, a compiler or interpreter for a programming language, you know, there's going to be some kind of parsing process where the uh, compiler or interpreter parses in the text of the, the program and, uh, 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 you know, basically figures out, um, uh, you know, what its in internal structure is. And, and uh, uh, basically uh, the, the way that's usually done is that the, the parser will generate uh, uh, an, uh, an abstract syntax tree, which uh, um, then is uh, turned into, you know, machine code or bytecode or something else uh, down the road. And so what the Lisp languages all have in common is that the parser is very sim simple, the, the reader, as they, they call it. Um, and it basically just uses all these parentheses to figure out how the code is organized. And that has certain advantages uh, because uh, you can, uh, uh, it, it sort of lets you, uh, gives you an opportunity to get under the hood of your, your, uh, your interpreter or compiler. And, and there's ways in Lisp to basically um, uh, make changes to the abstract syntax tree at a very low level uh, before it gets turned into uh, to bytecode or uh, compiled code. And so that's one of the uh, uh, subjects I cover towards the end of the book, which is the uh, macro system uh, in Lisp. I love that you said that Lisp is... It's kind of hard to say what Lisp is. I was totally expecting you to follow that up with Lisp is like obscenity. I know it when I see it. <laughs> yeah, kind of like that. I mean, the weird thing is, is you have things like like Dylan, uh, which uh, was a language Apple had created uh, uh, a couple decades ago, and uh, it looks uh, just like more a more common programming language. It doesn't have a 
bunch of parentheses, but it's basically just Lisp uh, under the hood. So the question is, you call that a Lisp? Um, and then, of course, you have JavaScript, which is kind of odd because um, a lot of JavaScript is actually very similar to a Lisp. And I actually really enjoy uh, JavaScript programming. I, I use CoffeeScript on top of it. But um, uh, you can basically do most of what you would do in a Lisp in JavaScript with, with some exceptions like macros. Um, uh, although, you know, with enough effort, you could do that, too. But it's not that practical. So, so, yeah. so Con Conrad, what did you think of Dylan? I'm curious because I, I got to kibitz in on that project when I was at Apple, and and it was it, we basically looked at it as the commonless object system sitting on top of Scheme. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, it kind of uh, predates me a bit because I only really got into uh, Lisp uh, about ten years ago. So so I, I you know I had some glancing familiarity with it at the time, but I've never written a Dylan program, and uh, you know I haven't heard anyone say that oh I need I should go back and and. Give, uh, do some Dylan programming, uh, so so I, I can't really have an informed opinion on it. Um, I think uh, you know I, I I certainly think that there's room for that type of a, la a language, uh, some kind of Lisp with a, with a different syntax. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I I, I, I don't know. <laughs> okay, okay, fair enough. So, okay. so Conrad, I wanted to ask. Uh, you mentioned that to you JavaScript feels a lot like Lisp in many ways, and when I was reading through your book, um, actually, I was struck by how you would you would refer to things and explain why they exist, and I and I would see the influences that that uh, Matz would later take when he built Ruby um, uh, in a lot of ways, and I was surprised by how many things I saw in Lisp that made me feel like uh, they definitely inspired Ruby, and I think uh, I think it's Paul Graham that has the essay about how to. Uh, you know how to use Lisp or how to get Lisp in somewhere that it, that comes down to, uh, and if you can't get them to use Lisp, then use Ruby because it's an acceptable uh, Lisp or something like that. Uh, I have sure. to look that article up. Have you ever used Ruby? Uh, yeah, actually, I, I uh, uh, am part of a startup called Zipnosis.com that does uh, online medical visits. Uh, I was a co-founder on it, um, although I'm not that heavily involved with it at this time, but it's, it's still a company that's uh, doing quite well. Um, and uh, it's built entirely on Ruby on Rails. Um, in fact, just, just before this call, I, I, uh, we, we had an emergency where I had to figure out how to load a, a YAML file into a, a database for a Ruby for on Rails project. Um, so I, I, you know, I have done some Ruby. Um, it's, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's one of those things. I mean, I, I kind of agree with Paul Graham. Um, I mean, when, when you, you know, let, let's sort of talk a little bit about what, what is it that Lisp uh, innovated that other languages have borrowed. Uh, I mean, there's a, there, you know, it comes down to a long list. And of course, you know, some of these were also invented independently by other parties. But for instance, the whole idea of being able to call functions within the function itself, so having recursive functions, uh, came out of Lisp. Then you have things like linked lists, which uh, are, are essentially the core of how you program in, in common Lisp with, with the list uh, uh, functions, um, is basically, you know, came out of Lisp. And then you have things like dynamically allocated memory, uh, garbage collection uh, was, uh, originally started in Lisp. Uh, then you have, uh, you know, functional programming, aspect-oriented programming, uh, generic functions, dynamic dispatch, lexical closures, um, 
you know, I mean, I mean, there's a bunch of things. You could even argue that XML is basically kind of stolen from Lisp because it actually works very similar to the way syntax expression work in Lisp. Um, so there's a lot of uh, different things. And then, you know, one thing that comes to mind with Ruby is that Ruby, I believe, has a uh, has a uh, concept of a symbol where you can have a variable that evaluates to itself. And that's something that also came out of uh, 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 Lisp originally. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's kind of uh, a, a strange, you know, to sort of think about why um, people find the, uh, the sort of syntax of Lisp with all the parentheses so uncomfortable. Because um, clearly there are people like myself that kind of like that uh, syntax. Uh, but then uh, for some reason that has always stopped uh, Lisp from hitting the mainstream in a big way. So, so Conrad, the um, one of the ways I like to think about the difference between math and physics is that math is discovered, but physics is invented. And uh, I, th I sort of think of the same thing about Lisp. I think Lisp was more discovered than invented. And something like, uh, you know, Java or, or you know, object-oriented programming was probably more on the invented side of things. But, it, you know, just to hear you talk about all the things that came out of the the efforts to create Lisp, it, it's it's like you're just dive, taking a deep dive into the mathematics of computation and discovering this whole field of things that are wonderfully interesting there. Right. Uh, I mean, another way you can put it is that uh, it's the difference between simple and easy. So Rich Hickey, who was the creator of the closure programming language, he recently uh, uh, put together a, uh, uh, a presentation that you can you can look it up online. It's called uh, Simple Made Easy, and he talks about you know how these two ideas are different, uh, and and you know the basic gist of it is is uh, you know uh, something can be be hard to learn but simple, and you know and and when you use the word easy, you basically mean that it, it it's it's easy to learn. Um, but that doesn't mean necessarily that if you look under the covers that it's, it's all that simple. And I think when you compare Rails uh, or, or Ruby in general and uh, you compare that against Lisp, I think that kind of applies, in, in my mind at least, it, that uh, what Lisp does is uh, uh, it, um, you know, it, it's a little harder to use and, and to learn, but it's, uh, it's actually pretty simple. Um, whereas uh, the way Ruby, Ruby works is that um, the, everything is designed to make things uh, uh, easy to learn um, and, and easy to use. And so, so if you look, for instance, at web frameworks, uh, you know, Rails, you have this idea of, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, convention versus configuration. And so the idea there basically is, is, you know, if you install Ruby on Rails on your machine, um, you pretty much have everything you need to, to, to you know, create a, a website. And, um, uh, it, you know, it's very easy to, to um, you know, create models and views and controllers and to, to uh, you know, to build a, uh, uh, a, a larger program out of it. Um, but, you know, if you look under the covers and you try to understand how does Rails really work, there's a lot of kind of ugly stuff going on under the hood. Uh, and... Uh, um, but, you know, th that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, Ruby and, and Rails isn't a great choice, uh, you know, probably a better choice for, for some types of projects. And as I said, for my own work, I, uh, uh, you know, I have uh, used Ruby on Rails um, because it's, you know, if you want to create, uh, if, if somebody's paying you to create a, uh, an interactive website, uh, you know, and you want to get it done in, a, uh, sh you know, the shortest amount of time possible, Ruby on Rails is a great tool to use. Um, but that, you know, but uh, it, uh, Lisp and, you know, Clojure, as uh, 
uh, specific example, um, uh, the web frameworks uh, that, that come with uh, Clojure, they're, they're much, much simpler than what you would find in Rails in terms of uh, you, can, you can read the source code for them. And, and if you're an experienced uh, Clojure programmer, there are very simple, and they're they're you know the number the line the number of lines of code is an order of magnitude smaller, um, uh, you know that doesn't have all the functionality that you get you know with Rails, but um, uh, but but it it all makes sense if you look under the hood. It's all designed in, in a very clean, elegant way, and everything is designed to just be be simple, um, uh, and and be be. Uh, and everything is done in the right way, and no compromises are made to make it easier or uh, to make it look easy from the outside. Um, hey, hey, guys! This huh? this guy this guy is officially the most dangerous guest we've ever had on. <laughs> <laughs> Does Skype let you mute other people? <laughs> I, I'm thinking about learning closure now. So we won't have we won't have any listeners next week. They'll all be uh, learning closure. Yeah, yeah closure cast. <laughs> So, so I, I, Con Conrad, were you saying that Lisp is like Go? It's well, like go, go is simple but not easy. Yeah, I mean, I you know, it's one of those things. I mean, you know, general relativity is is simple, but you know, it's not easy. Um, so, so, uh, um, well, well, I mean, Go is kind of different because you know, being that it's designed to be a system. Pro systems programming language, um, a lot of the stuff that you, uh, the functionality in Go, uh, is designed, you know, to for performance, and um, uh, you know that they, they don't have as many sort of high level, uh, con you know, constructs in there. Um, uh, so yeah, uh, but but I, I guess that kind of applies. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think Go is based on a few fundamental principles that the designers. Uh, wanted to uh, have in their language, and uh, and it, they were pretty uh, ruthless about um, designing the entire language around those concepts. And so, you know, once you learn how it works, um, it's all elegant uh, as long as you accept the initial uh, principles of the language. So I have two listener questions that I want to ask. Incidentally, they're both from the same person here. Um, the, the first one came in over Twitter and it says, it's hard to modify Lisp code. I have to rewrite functions because I wind up at the wrong nesting level. Tips? Um, uh, well, uh, so um, dealing with, uh, I assume he's talking about the issue of uh, having so many darn parentheses. Um, and uh, uh, if, you're, if you use Emacs, um, there's something called paren mode which is a mode that um, prevents you from um, uh, deleting uh, an open parentheses with, you know, without also deleting the closing parentheses. And basically it does that you know, for all possible operations. So you always have matching parentheses. And then it has functions basically for increasing or decreasing the, uh, the depth of a, of a, of a uh, form within those parentheses. Uh, so so that's, a, you know, that's a problem. It's very, very easy to, uh, to get confused uh, and uh, uh, get the parentheses in the wrong place. Um, but uh, so, I mean, I guess the tip would be to learn paren mode. It actually works very well, and it will make sure you uh, you never screw up your parentheses. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems like white space, depending on how you use it, might help a little there too. 
yeah, I mean, each each of the Lisp dialects, of course, has a certain indenting style. But the weird thing being that it's Lisp is that uh, white space or new lines don't really have any meaning. I mean, they delimit uh, the tokens in your program. But you can, you know, you can uh, put new lines anywhere in a, in, a, in a function that you want, and it wouldn't uh, affect how it runs, which is, of course, different from Ruby, which is an indentation delimited uh, uh, language. Um, so, um, yeah. Okay. Oh, you're th you're thinking of Python there. Python's oh, am I getting him? Python's indentation delimited. Yep. Ruby is not usually white space sensitive, although there are some edge cases. Right, but uh, the the new line isn't completely agnostic either. I'm not sure yeah. if I'm saying that right. But. Yeah, yeah it, it it's used to end statements generally, unless. Yeah. Unless followed by certain operators right. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Right. I guess I haven't tried to format Ruby in enough weird ways to yeah. really uh, know the answer to that. But it, yeah, I think you're right. Python is even more along the lines of what I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah, Dave, Dave the, the, Thomas has a good example of. You say it's not white space sensitive, but you know he does show a few I, instances. I love where, that talk. Yeah, it's it's really kind of a fun one. It just basically basically goes into the minutia of Ruby and he's like, look, if I put a space here, all of a sudden it's a syntax error. <laughs> well, the, Ru Ruby lets you use optional parentheses and I believe that's where a lot of the white space sensitivity comes from. Yeah. yeah. Well, right. and also it will let you prefix a number with a plus. So two times three, new line, plus four, returns four. Right. All right. So the next question is also from the same person. Um, and he emailed me this question. He said, hey, Chuck, I love the podcast, and I really enjoyed this Land of Lisp edition of the book club. It turned out to be one of my all-time favorite programming books. I just wanted to put that in there because someone else appreciates the book, too. Awesome. He says, how do Lispers deal with complex data structures? I mean, I get that there are lists and hashes and associative arrays and even objects via def struct and that they're flexible and awesome. I guess what I'm driving at is domain models. For example, in the Dice of Doom game, Code dealing with the game tree is constantly carring and cuttering, or some variation thereof, the same parts of the tree representing the player or the board or follow-up moves. It's difficult to keep track of what each of these represent, especially after jumping to another project for a chapter or two. I'm curious if this is just something Lispers adjust to, or whether they deal with this by leveraging Defstruct a little more, or if there's another trick they use. I mean, something like tree move tree moves tree seems better than catter tree to me from a maintainability standpoint yeah so so this you know raises uh, a, a whole bunch of questions um so so the first thing one of the innovations initially of lisp is that it has um a, a equivalence of print and read so that means if you take uh uh you know, in common Lisp, uh, if you use the correct print and read functions, you can basically print out a data structure um, and then, uh, you know, uh, paste it back in and, and read it, and it will it, it will uh, uh, be able to read it back in uh, directly. So basically, uh, all the uh, the data structures uh, or most of them are serializable. So now the problem, of course, is when you start getting into structures or, or objects, basically, uh, you, you start losing some of that, you know, because basically an object has a type. So that means if you print it out, um, the uh, the printer has to say, oh, this is, uh, you know, a point or whatever. And then if you load it in again, 
um, it has to, uh, you know, it would have to be smart enough to know that that's a point and loaded in in the right way. And there are there it, within with record syntax, a common list can actually handle that. Um, but uh, but it, it you know it falls apart the more um, uh, types you give your um, your uh, you, you know your data. So if you use full uh, CLOS uh, uh, object oriented programming, I don't think uh, it can you know print and read it anymore. Uh, some some list packer might uh, say I'm wrong on that. Uh, um, so uh, uh, yeah, so so that's sort of so there's a trade off. What I'm saying is that the more heavily you type your um, your data structures. That means essentially you're adding metadata to your data, uh, which is what types are. And uh, that metadata, um, you know, if you want to, if you want to print out your uh, your your data structures, you know, save them to a file and then load them back in again, uh, that that can get in the way. Um, but on the other hand, it's great to have t uh, have types because then if you uh, write functions, you can basically have it throw errors if you try to use the wrong uh, function with you know with a uh, the type that doesn't uh, that that function isn't looking for. And so um, uh, so so with common list, you know, that's definitely a criticism because uh, with common list, uh, a lot of the the code is uh, written often just with straight lists. And then of course you have these extremely complicated data structures and in dice of doom that would be one example I have a very complicated data structure that's actually infinite in length um, and uh, uh, um, you're basically just you all you have is uh, car and, and cutter to, uh, to to break it apart and it's very easy to lose track of you know what piece are you breaking apart and uh, you know shouldn't wouldn't be make more sense to use an object in there uh, so uh, yeah so I mean I kind of agree with that criticism uh, and I think that um, if you do a lot of functional programming, which is what I do in that dice of doom uh, example at the end it's uh, it's uses pure uh, functional programming um, then uh, uh, what you find is is it's it's very easy uh, to break functions into smaller functions. Uh, often that's not the case in object-oriented programming. Often it's you end up with uh, large objects that have a lot of functions on it because it's harder to break them into smaller chunks. Um, oh, we're going to have function, a throwdown about that. <laughs> yeah. So with with functions, it's always easy to break them into smaller functions if you just make your data structures more complicated because you can always uh, you know write a smaller function to 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 pull a little bit out of a data structure. But what happens is you're, you're basically just cheating by hiding all of the complexity inside of large data structures. Um, and uh, uh, so, so you, you, you know, so, so I think that's a valid criticism for my dice of doom is, uh, you know, yeah, it's, you know, great to have short functions and stuff, but does it really matter if, if you can't make any sense of the data structures anymore? And I certainly uh, struggle with that when I do my own functional programming because, because, uh, you know, the traditional way to write a functional programming uh, program is, you know, with functional programming, you don't want to have a lot of mutable state around. So what you usually have is you usually have this variable called the world or whatever that has all the mutable state in it in, in, in one very complicated data structure and you just kind of pass that around to everybody and, uh, uh, and, and that's sort of how you uh, keep uh, state from ending up everywhere in your program. But then of course the world ends up being really, really complicated as, as a data structure. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I got to say, uh, you know, as much as I liked the book, uh, the main thing that I, my main takeaway from the book is that I really prefer object-oriented programming. It's, there's a lot of beauty to functional programming, and I and I know that it applies to a lot of problems pretty nicely. But mostly, when I'm modeling the real world, 
object-oriented programming is just a much better approach for me. Well, I, I think it's true. Like um, in, in, in many cases, like take a person, for instance, right? So in a closure, if I'm if I have a person, and let's say I want to ch uh, change their uh, their uh, last name because they got married, uh, the way I basically do it is I create a uh, a new person that has a different last name, and then I kind of swap the one out for the other. And uh, and you could argue, well, that's not really how the real world works. In the real world, uh, you only have um, uh, um, you know one person. So wouldn't it make much more sense to just go in? and uh, modify that person's last name as an object. Um, and uh, I think in a lot of cases, you, you know, that you, you can make that argument. A lot of things in the real world are very neatly um, uh, thought of as independent objects that have state in them. And, and one big example for that is uh, um, UI programming. So if you have a, a list box, uh, it's very easy to to think of the list box as being uh, an object that has uh, a list of items in it and, and functions that let you uh, work with that list of items and events that let you work with that list of items. And that's definitely uh, an object-oriented programming idea. And uh, I'm doing some uh, 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 JavaScript programming right now where I'm dealing with lists of items and I'm writing the JavaScript program entirely in a functional style. And so, uh, so I really, I have no such concept uh, as a list box object. It's uh, uh, I, uh, the code that deals with that list box is spread over several different areas of my program because uh, uh, there is no central home where, where I say this is where the list box code is. And, uh, you know, and there's, there's pluses and minuses to, to that type of approach. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, I, I tend to find in the long run that it's more minuses, but that's you know because of my history and and uh, all that. So I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that other people can't make that work for them just fine. This feels so weird and backwards to have me be saying this, but Josh, be nice. <laughs> You're right. That was very we've, awkward. We've we've entered we've entered bizarro world now. What restraining Josh? All right. So Conrad, I'm going to try to redirect to a different area here. So we know that you know Lisp, uh, Commonless, Closure, all of that. You've mentioned that you do some JavaScript, you do some Ruby. I believe you mentioned Java in your music video for your book. So. Uh, it's clear you have all this language training, and yet it's Conrad Barsky, MD. Am I correct? That that is correct. I'm sure uh, that's a wonderful story. Uh, well, you know, it's 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 really quite simple. Um, you know, you uh, um, you know, I I did well academically in uh, you know high school and college, and uh, um, you know, as I said back in the day, I was a uh, uh, working for a contractor for Atari. Uh, if anyone remembers the uh, the uh, um, the Atari Jaguar, I I uh, was lead developer on a game for for that called Flipout. Uh, uh, you if you want to if you go to YouTube, you can see some Flipout videos for the uh, Atari Jaguar. It's it's not that impressive, uh, you know. Now looking back back at it, <laughs> but. Um, uh, uh, and uh, uh, so, yeah, so, you know, I kind of, I, at some point I faced this choice where it's like, okay, am I, am I just going to be a computer, uh, uh, you know, computer programmer? Um, or, you know, do I, you know, do I want to sit in a cubicle all day and program? Or do I want to do something, you know, that's a little more exciting maybe, you know, and, and go into medicine, you know, where you do uh, 
kind of a larger variety of things uh, than, you know, just always sitting in a cubicle. And I, I liked that idea. And uh, so I went to medical school and, uh, you know, uh, there's certain things that you don't really learn about uh, uh, things like medical school without having uh, gone through it. <laughs> so uh, and so what I found out is that uh, just in terms of my temperament, uh, you know, I don't really make a very good good doctor uh, uh, because, uh, you know, I tend to be somebody who, um, uh, you know, I, I like to be able to uh, think things through, like I want to be able to sleep over a problem and then, you know, fix it the next day. And, uh, you know, uh, medicine is definitely something uh, for a lot of areas of medicine where you kind of have to uh, be, be able to think on your feet very quickly, which uh, uh, is, isn't really my temperament. And then also, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, the thing you also find out about medicine is, is it's actually frightening how little we understand about how a lot of the human body works. Yes. So uh, a lot of the a lot of the things in medicine are really um, not uh, that well backed by by science. You know, it's more uh, a tradition, and you you learn uh, everything has been kind of figured out empirically, and you basically have to memorize ridiculous numbers of things uh, um, uh, to to you know be a good doctor. And um, uh, but you know I'm I'm somebody you know like when I was in in, in college or whatever, and I took a physics. Uh, course, you know, I would just, I would just look at, you know, a few of the basic formulas, you know, before the tests, and it's like, oh, you know, I can sort of see the big picture here, and I can see how all this fits together, and all these other formulas obviously just derive trivially from the main five formulas here, and I don't have to memorize all the other other ones, you know, they're obvious, and you know, you can like medicine is exactly the opposite to that. You just have to, every little fact uh, has no real uh, logical reason why it why it's true, so it's just. Uh, raw, raw memorization. So, uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, I just found out at the end of the day that I really like programming. Um, and just, just now I'm, I'm starting to get back into medicine because uh, uh, we're working on a pro pro uh, product uh, for my day job um, detecting uh, sepsis uh, in hospitals, uh, uh, early, uh, doing early sepsis detection. And uh, so, uh, so now I'm kind of getting into, the, you know, reading up on, uh, uh, you know, what's known about sepsis and trying to, you know, understanding the medicine behind it. And, uh, um, you know, I'm finally sort of starting to feel like, uh, you know, um, I'm, uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, makes makes us all programmers is that we're probably all very good at obsessing about uh, some problem we're working on. And uh, and I, you know, I, I always had that with with computer programming. And, uh, um, you know, just now I'm starting to get that a little bit with with uh, with medicine where I can obsess over a particular medical puzzle. And uh, and, uh, uh, you you know, and, and if you don't have that, if you can't get obsessed about things like that, um, uh, you, you, you're never going to be as good. <laughs> so, yeah, it sounds like you use uh, your medicine in your programming uh, in several places. Like I know you mentioned earlier uh, uh, some kind of tracking, medical tracking thing that you'd worked on. And I believe in the, uh, in the description in the book it mentions you working on cardiographic software or something like that, I think. Yeah, Cardiology software. Um, so it's it's kind of interesting that uh, what you find is that cardiologists, after they do a heart operation, um, it's really hard to describe heart operations in words. So what they actually do is they they have they photocopy pictures of the heart and they stick them in the patient chart and then they draw on them with colored pencils to explain what they did. 
And so, so part of the system I worked on is, uh, is, is basically coming up with a drawing program for, for cardiologists. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I could kind of draw in, uh, in, in on my, uh, my video game experience to, to, to work on some of that. It's, that was pretty fun. That is cool. Well, we need to get into the picks. I hate to Hang on, Chuck. Up. I got one more really important question. Yes, sir. <laughs> the most important question we've asked the entire episode. Conrad, did you purposefully name the book so that it shortens to LOL? No, it was uh, just something I realized afterwards. <laughs> a happy um, accident. All right. That's I, it. I, I, okay. yeah. Wait, wait we got to ask Avdi's question for him. I don't yeah. even know how to ask Avdi's okay. question. So, so, so Conrad... I, Avdi has a funny question and then a, a an actual uh, real point. So I just put something in the uh, Skype chat window, and uh, Avdi wants to know how to pronounce that. And for the listeners, I'll spell it. It's C A D D A D A A A D D A D A A D D R. So I, I have no idea um, until I listened to podcasts. I didn't even know how to pronounce cutter. Um, so uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I remember hearing the word cadaver a lot when I was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've, I've heard that one. But uh, but yeah, so so for those people who don't know, um, so uh, essentially when you're dealing with common list, you're essentially. Uh, working with something that's uh, a linked list, and uh, and and you know it might be uh, a linked list is basically where you have little boxes, and and each little box um, has has basically two two pointers in it, one pointer that points to the next uh, piece of the list, and then the other pointer that points to a chunk of data that that represents the data that's in that part of the list, and uh, so uh, so it's very uh, so what. Uh, uh, common list does is it actually defines up to some level like five or six levels deep um, all these weird functions that basically say you know get the get the um, uh, the second item out of the list that's stored in the third item of the list and those uh, so those kinds of operations you can all uh, uh, because because getting the first item out of the list is always called car I'm sorry getting the f first item out of a con cell which is what this little box is is called the car and then uh, getting the the second item, which usually points to another list, the rest of the list, uh, is in the cutter. Uh, they just string together these weird functions where they have A's and D's uh, uh, in, in a long list in order to extract some deep piece of data. <laughs> so, yeah, but, so, so, so yeah. you got, I, I think this came from what, contents of address register and contents of data register, which were instructions on the machine that they were building Lisp on at the time. Yeah, although I also had heard that, that that somebody else thought that that was uh, uh, too convenient an answer, and that the truth was somehow more complicated, and nobody really knows where the names came from. <laughs> well, 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 I mean, I, I I first heard that story many years ago. It's I, I've yeah, never heard I, yeah, I, I heard that described as as being a myth. So, but I don't know oh, if if what I heard was right. <laughs> well, uh, so. Avdi's point behind this question really was teaching Lisp using all of the you know weird little crufty names of things that have aggregated over you know uh, what is it accreted over the years, uh, or you know he was saying that he he likes the the perspective of you teach Lisp using semantic words that are understandable like you know, head and rest or first and rest when you're talking or head and tail when you're talking about a list and 
I, I guess if you're programming in common Lisp, you need to have the actual function names. But did you think about that when you were writing the book about how obscure some of the names were versus how approachable they were? Yeah, I thought about that uh, endlessly. Um, one good example is uh, actually like in, in the first or second chapter, I use a function I believe that's called uh, uh, ash, A-S-H, which uh -huh. is a, uh, which is a, uh, uh, I think, uh, uh, hopefully I, I don't remember this wrong, but I think it's a right shift uh, function. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and it's so, um, you know, and, and I keep having people ask me, why in the world did you use this function that not even the most common list programmers have ever heard of? Um, and the, the rationale for it is actually really mundane, which is that the, the obvious way to, uh, to um, because I, I'm doing something that's sort of like a binary uh, uh, search where I always have to take, uh, 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 you know, the distance between two uh, numbers and, and have it and come up with an average. So, so the obvious way to come up with an average, of course, is to just, you know, add the numbers, divide by two, and then round it off uh, or, 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 you know, do a floor operation. Uh, but the problem is is that the, the round and floor um, functions in Lisp uh, are, are really, in, in common Lisp, are really helpful because they actually return two values. They return your rounded number and they return, a, uh, uh, they return what the uh, remainder was. And so if you, if, you, if you try to divide the number three by two in common Lisp and then round it, it will, it will actually, on the, in the console, it will print two numbers. The first one is the, the, uh, you know, the rounded number, and the other one is the remainder of one. And uh, so, so, you know, which is perfectly fine, because then if you pass that, that result to another function, it will actually just, just, uh, just discard the second value. It's called um, uh, multiple values. Uh, and so common list supports multiple values. And if a function is not aware of multiple values, it will just not even notice that the extra, extra values exist. Um, uh, but the problem is, is if I give that in a, in a programming example, right, you're going to see all this weird stuff showing up in the console as you're, as you're developing the game, because I do everything interactively in the console. And so it would be very confusing to see that. So, so I had to, so I used this shift operation, you know, which just shifts the, the bits over. And, uh, and basically that does a, uh, an averaging and a rounding at the same time. Uh, but it also has the nice effect that it doesn't uh, uh, return multiple values. And then multiple values values are covered in some later chapter, uh, but, but I didn't want to cover those in chapter two. So, so I had to come up, there, there were all kinds of excruciating decisions I had to make like that where, um, uh, you know, arguably, you know, you could argue I made, I, I made a, a weird choice, but, uh, you know, uh, it's my book. You know, if, if you didn't like the choices I make, then write, write your own book. <laughs> Go ahead. I dare you. Yeah. I, I actually feel slightly vindicated though because I had to fire up the Emacs and use its function lookup to figure out what the ash function did. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's just, well, it's yeah. It's an arithmetic shift, right? It comes right out of the ASH. Yeah, yep. yeah. yeah, yeah. That makes sense. So yeah. it's it's actually interesting that that common Lisp and Scheme both give you you know the four levels deep of you know kata r and kara data and kata data and. And the first two or three times I tried to learn Lisp or Scheme, I thought four levels is not enough. And so I would write this file called um, that had the just all the combinations all the way out to 10 levels deep. <laughs> and 
I basically ended up at the kind of the same, without the same level of depth of understanding uh, that you reached with Dice of Doom with all the using, you know, to get to things instead of writing functions to say, hey, I actually want to get, you know, the, the die roll of this land piece of this here. Um, I, after about two or three attempts of this, I finally concluded that if you need more than four levels of you're doing it wrong. And you need to write some. You need to start putting semantic meaning on what you're doing. I like how you put that. That when you put semantic meaning on it, you're kind of freezing your data structure a little bit. Yeah. Well. Well. If you if you read uh, you know structures and interpretation of computer programming uh, SICP, which is yeah. you know not another uh, <laughs> you know arguably much better list book probably than mine. Um, it. Uh, um, it actually covers. Uh, uh, it talks about that very question, and they and what they suggest is that you should always, when you have any kind of data structure, you should always write functions that operate on that data structure, and then use those functions, and never use data structures in their raw form. Right. And then that that way, if you ever later on want to change the data structure, you you don't have to search through your whole program. So it's kind of a, a crude form of encapsulation, like you would have with object-oriented programming. Um, and uh, you know you can yeah you can certainly do that. It's uh, again it's you know uh, I mean I, I don't know if you guys remember like these these uh, old books you know a hundred and one uh, basic programming games or whatever from back in the day, which is kind of what my book was inspired by. But of course, if you know, if you write like a, uh, I don't know, a, a chess uh, program in, uh, you know, a hundred lines of, of basic, you know, you, you're not going to be able to understand those hundred lines. It's going to be, you know, gobbledygook. But, you know, you type those in and you can enjoy that experience of playing chess on your computer. Um, and uh, that's kind of how I uh, uh, viewed this book in that, um, you know, I wanted to make sure that at the end of each chapter, there's some fun little game that you actually programmed that was reasonable in size, you know, maybe only uh, 50 lines of code or something that, that you could play around with. And, and I do some compromises to, to make that possible by not uh, doing, you know, using the most elegant uh, programming techniques. <laughs> and, and I would say that there's definitely things in my book that are, are bad programming practice, you know, if you're writing real software, lots, lots of them. I mean, you you know, a typical example is uh, there's a case where I use uh, eval, and uh, what eval lets you do is it basically lets you run uh, a piece of data as if it's a list program. And of course, uh, you know anyone who's familiar with uh, internet security knows how dangerous it is. You know, just like when folks uh, try to inject, uh, 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 do do SQL injection attacks on databases uh, online, where they you know they they put in a bit of SQL code inside of a, a username or something. Um, you, you never want to take uh, the user's uh, input and, and evaluate it as a program. And uh, yeah, but it's, you can sure make some nice games if you, uh, if you take advantage of those kinds of features. <laughs> I, I will say in defense of your horrible programming practices that I own a copy of Land of Lisp and I own a copy of the SICP book. And I have not finished the SICP book. <laughs> All right. Well, that being said, I think we really need to get to the picks because we are over an hour now. So uh, we'll go ahead get started. Uh, Dave, what are your picks? Um, so I had a pick, and I mentioned it in the pregame, and everyone screamed. Um, and I don't know if I should just use a different pick or if I should just go ahead and go with it. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to give you my pick, but I'm not going to explain it. Um a friend of mine uh, 
and also a listener of the podcast sent me a book called the Kama Putra, uh, 52 Mind-Blowing Ways to Poop. And I have been convulsing with laughter looking through this book. It's, it's, uh, it's basically a whole bunch of pictures of ways you can get on a toilet inventively. And I said I wasn't going to explain it, and here we are. So um, that's my pick. So let me get this straight. People send me the hate mail and you get gifts? I get uh, – I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> no, it's, it's, seriously, this book has, uh, you know, positions with, uh, you know, partners, positions with toys. It's – yeah. The, 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 the cell phone poop is in here. So there's, there's, there's a proper technique. So. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, and as my second pick, uh, Conrad, I need you to settle an argument between me and uh, James that isn't really an argument. Um, the function to iterate over a list of pairs and select one based on the first one. Um, this is you know an associative array. The function, I pronounce it ASOC, and James pronounces it ASOCH. How do you pronounce it? Uh, again, I've never in my life heard anybody ever say that function out loud, so I have no idea. But uh, you just program in silence. <laughs> I've definitely, uh, uh, I've definitely pronounced it ASOC, but uh, I have no, uh, no, no reasoning for that. I use the third say, I have to say, a soch sounds a little uh, more sensible though now in hindsight. Ah. So. What did you say, Josh? You have another one. I, I, I put the I put the emphasis on the second syllable. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 uh, Conrad, then do you kind of you don't say any of these out loud? Do you treat Lisp like the names of God? I mean, do you like take the vowels out of things when you write them? <laughs> uh, well, I guess you know. As I said, you know, I'm I'm kind of a lone wolf. You know, nobody at my company is really uh, into this kind of stuff. So, I uh, I don't really spend that much time conversing with other list programmers. So, uh, so so I just I don't I don't you know I don't know how things are pronounced necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That means you I'm, get to make it up. Yep, I'm done. <laughs> Asok, it's pronounced lisp. Yeah. <laughs> all right, James, what are your picks? Okay, I'm all business this time around. Um, actually, first, I have this uh, inventing on principle video, which I assume basically every programmer in the world has seen by this point. But if you have not, you're absolutely bound to go watch it. Um, it's some of the most amazing rethinking of computer interfacing ever. So you absolutely have to watch it because it will just make you dream of the commuters of tomorrow. Uh, so that's that's cool stuff. Um Last week I took, uh, oh God, I'm going to get this name wrong, Marc-Andre Cunier, I think, uh, Cunier's uh, class on uh, writing your own programming language, uh, and it's really great, uh, really, really great. Um, just, you know, he, he, it's two days, he really starts down to the basics, writing a lecture all the way up to a parser, runtime, interpreter, compiler. Uh, you learn about garbage collectors just in time compilation. I mean, there's exercises. He, he, you know, does these presentations. You're in there with other people and working together, and it's just a total blast if you're into that kind of thing at all. So uh, I couldn't recommend that class enough. He has another class called Owning Rails, where he basically just starts building Rails from scratch to 
teach you parts of Rails, and I, I probably will take that one in the future because I enjoyed the uh, the first one so much. Uh, Mark, if you don't know him, is the guy that wrote TinyRB, uh, and he has a book, uh, um, uh, How to Pro Create Your Own Programming Language. Um, but he's probably best known for Thing. He made the Thin web server um, for Rails. So anyways, uh, those classes are awesome, and I can't recommend them enough. And my final recommendation is um, uh, I've, I've been needing some themes, uh, just website designs without, and I didn't want to go through a designer this time. It's not that important to have a designer on every single project, I don't think. Um, I'm sure I'll get hate mail for that too. Uh, there's nothing wrong with using a stock design. Uh, and if you do want stock designs, like the best place in the world to get them is Theme Forest. Uh, they just have tons of stock designs. They usually have lots of elements in them, so you can pretty much take them and customize them as you need to. And it's just like a super handy resource when you're throwing together a web page. So those are my picks. All right. Josh, what are your picks? Okay. I'm, I'm going to be rather uh, practical this week. Uh, I got an email from Paulo Sangregorio. Sangregorio? Yeah, there we go. Hey, I've done the podcast uh Achievement of mispronouncing someone's name on the air. Cool. <laughs> <Follow> <laughs> is, there a, is there a Facebook badge for that? Yeah, I think that. Or a coder wall. I don't know. Uh, so uh, I got an email from him telling me about their new applications for the iPhone and iPad, uh, which are um, which I checked them out, and they're pretty cool. There are uh, two apps. One is for Ruby. The other is for Rails. And they're basically taking the the documentation the art that you you know, the online documentation for these and packaging them up as apps. So it's it's nice if you're not uh, connected to the internet, you can read this stuff and navigate around in it. Uh, I think they're going to have to evolve the UI just a little bit. Some of it's a little clunky for iOS, but it's it's a really good start. And it's, it's nice to have this stuff in your pocket sometimes, so, you know, for bar conversations about just what the Active Record API is. Cool. Cool. So, okay, so so those are at uh, uh, pandalab.it or apps.pandalab.it, and you know we'll have the link in the show notes. How many bar bets have you won using that? <laughs> Josh wins all bar bets. I, I don't. I don't need these apps to win bar bets. That's right. That's right. Uh, I'm saying for other people. Yeah, these app, these apps are the referee. Oh yeah, well it's this. You want to look it up? Check it out. <laughs> okay, I'm done. All right, so my picks, I have two picks. The first one is AppSumo. Um, they have all kinds of deals. It's it's kind of like Groupon, except it's for web people. So they have stuff for coders, stuff for designers, uh, all kinds of stuff. They have information on SEO. Um, I mean, I've seen all kinds of stuff come through and I've bought some other stuff, um, gotten some deals on some books, just just stuff like that. So, so that's my first pick. And uh, my second pick, is uh, something that I've been involved in for a little while now. And uh, what it is, is it's a community around marketing. And it's something that I've uh, really benefited from as far as um, kind of beefing up my marketing as I go. And the, the thing that I've been focusing on lately has actually been my uh, email newsletters. And uh, the group is called The Third Tribe. And uh, they just reopened um, registrations again last month. They closed it for like six months or something. 
And um, anyway, they have they have twice weekly Q and A webinars that you can just call into and listen to. And then on top of that, they also have a forum where you can put questions in and get answers to and interact with other people. And they've got uh, they've also like every month they have one or two uh, sessions that you can get on and they talk about a particular. Uh, topic. So the last one was actually on building your mailing list, you know, getting people in, building things out so people are getting what they want from it, um, getting them involved, and then using it as a marketing tool for your products. And so uh, that has been really uh, educational and helpful. And so if you're looking at running your own business or uh, looking at uh, building products and selling them, this is really a super way of getting involved and getting that going. They, they just give you a ton of information and you almost have to kind of pare it down so that you only focus on one thing at a time. And that's kind of what I do. So lately it's been that uh, email stuff and then I'll probably get into some of the other topics that they have there. And uh, you can go and get their entire backlog of um, recorded sessions so you can uh, you know you can go back a year or two and and listen to all of their Q&A stuff and apply that to what you're doing so anyway both pretty handy one has saved me money well I don't know if AppSumo has really saved me money I might have spent more money than I would have spent otherwise but you know just handy stuff there so um, if you're looking for stuff like that then uh, go check them out uh, Conrad did we warn you about picks and do you have anything you want to share you, you sure did. Um, so my uh, programming pick, um, uh, so anyone who's written any uh, migrations in uh, Rails, uh, I'm sure they've had the, the, the thought at some point in their head where they think, hmm, basically uh, the forward and backward migrations are, are the same thing, except that they work in reverse. Couldn't you create some kind of program that just generates the backwards migration from the forward migration? Um, and of course, in certain cases, that wouldn't work. You know, if the forward migration uh, deletes uh, rows, then obviously you can't recreate them in the other direction. But not surprisingly, computer scientists have, have thought about this problem. And there's actually a, a, a certain types of programming languages called uh, bidirectional programming languages. Uh, and you can, uh, I recommend reading up on uh, bidirectional programming languages. Uh, one example is, uh, is this language called Boomerang. And so basically they, uh, the example program that they use, they convert uh, uh, book, uh, browser bookmarks from one format to another. Um, and they uh, they actually just write the program once, and it just converts from format A to format B. And then when they're done, they can just push a button, and it automatically can go in the other direction too, and create format A from format B. So I th I, I think that's really cool, and I think it might actually uh, I can see a lot more happening in that direction because to me it makes sense in terms of a user interface. You know, when you're talking about a view and a model in you know in an MVC architecture, uh, in a way uh, you know the view is. Just just a transformation of, of the data inside of the model. So wouldn't it be great if you could just write code that generates the view of your, your model, and then if the user interacts with it, the program just automatically figures out what change would be necessary in the model uh, to, to have that happen. So I think, I think there's probably going to be stuff happening with that kind of an idea in the future. Uh, for my non-programming pick, um, uh, I'm going to recommend a, a book. Uh, 
Uh, so, so I don't really read a lot of nonfiction, and uh, I'd say mainly that is because I, I tend to like fiction that has sort of uh, uh, science fiction or sort of fantasy st stuff in it, but I, I also w don't like reading things unless they're really realistically written, because I, I just can't get that suspension of disbelief unless, uh, you know, somebody really took the time and, and makes the characters believable. Um, and uh, one book that I recently uh, have been reading that falls under that category um, is uh, called uh, 1Q84 uh, by uh, Haruki Murakami. So it's a Japanese book, and it's basically uh, sort of a magical realism book uh, with really great character development, very realistic and believable. It's like uh, over a thousand pages, and and I, I've been cheating. I've been doing the uh, the audio book actually. So for you podcast listeners, uh, if you want to add that to your uh, uh, Audible.com, uh, you know reading. Uh, uh, listening, uh, you know, you can pad your podcasts with with extra material that way. So that's uh, definitely something I would pick. And one and one thing I was really impressed with with the with the uh, audiobook was uh, uh, the uh, effort that the um, the uh, the narrators use. There's there's one page in the book where there's basically a whole text of uh, where a, a person sings uh, like a Bach sonata or something, and they have the whole German text that's like a page long, and the uh, the narrator actually goes and he actually sings the entire like sonata in German uh, at that point in the book <laughs> those are my picks awesome all right that is way cool yeah so uh, you know nobody nobody does programming audiobooks <laughs> uh, oh yeah I wouldn't it be great you get into the car and there's like, like deaf foo yeah. receives x comma y uh, uh, <laughs> the car car accident ratio would go up. Dude. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that with JavaScript, and it'd be like function foo open paren a comma b close paren open curly brace. Yeah, is this the audio version of literate programming? Yeah. <laughs> Have you guys seen that hilarious video where the there's a guy? I think he's programming in Perl using like. Dragon naturally yes. speaking, or something yes. like oh, that. No, it's hilarious. I just, I, I just realized Conrad's probably old enough to remember um, sitting at an old eight-bit computer and typing while your friend reads to you from Byte magazine. <laughs> I've, I don't know if I've ever done uh, it with two people, but I, I could certainly see how I could have saved some time that was, uh, with that approach. That no, it doesn't. It I does not from. save time. Yeah. <laughs> that All was right. my problem. I didn't have the friends. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's wrap this up real quick. A uh, couple of business items. First off, you can get the show notes at rubyrogues.com. You can find us in iTunes. Please leave us a review or a rating or both. And that, that should be it. We'll catch you next week. Can we mention the next book club? Do we know what we're talking about? The book club? Yes. Yes, we do. The one that won second place in the last vote, we oh, said yes. this time. It's Crafting Rails Applications by Jose Valim, right? Yep. Is that right? Do we know when we're doing that yet? Uh, uh, no, we still have to pick a date, but it's, what, about a month from now? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, a month or two. Yeah, we need to coordinate that particular date with Jose. Okay. Right. So we'll figure that out, and we'll let you know.